Welcome to Blog Talk Radio in high fidelity. Revolution, featuring your host, Heisey Ludmers. My, my grandparents actually gave up their spots on Schindler's List they could have had to an elderly couple because they knew that that elderly couple wouldn't be able to survive the work camps. My grandfather had to keep going to work as a 18-year-old boy, 21, I think he was, no, I think he was 20 maybe, and he had to shave and cut the hair of these SS soldiers every day. And they would say to him, you know, Jew, if you, if you cut us, we kill you. Until I went to Israel at 26, I never truly felt what it meant to connect to something greater than you. It felt like all of these sort of cellular memories, so to speak, and DNA memories that have been passed down to me and, and different traits, and I felt like it all opened up and unlocked and came to life for me. I really do believe it is because I finally started truly believing in myself. And you just have to shift. And it takes time. And it's hard work. But, but when you do it, it's, oh my gosh, it's so freeing. I went up to the mountain Cause you asked me to Up over the clouds To where the sky was blue I could see all around Revolutionary guest this month is international actor, model, singer, and dancer David Hilfstein. David has performed professionally in both the U.S. and Israel over the last 12 years on stage, television, film, internet, and in voiceovers. Prior to leaving New York City for Israel in late 2007, he was an actor and model who studied under the prestigious Julie Garfield at T. Schreiber Acting Studios in New York City. Memorable New York credits include off-Broadway roles in The Fantasy Party, Much Ado About Nothing, the world premiere of The Mission, as well as film roles in We Own the Night and Disquiet, and television appearances in Rescue Me, Six Degrees, and Nights of Prosperity. During his time living in Jerusalem, 
He co-founded and was the co-artistic director of a black box professional theater company called Way Off Productions. David had memorable roles in Israel in productions such as Rent, Fat Pig, Arsenic, The Musical, and The Miracle Worker. He also appeared in the Cry No More music video, which has had over 2 million views on YouTube to date. Since returning to the States, David has been seen on television and in independent films. He recently finished shooting an Iranian feature film, a television series pilot, the soon-to-be-released dramatic fantasy thriller movie A Beautiful Distraction, and later this year he will be seen on a new Netflix series. In theater, he has most recently played Tate in the musical Ragtime, Astolfo in Life is a Dream, and Hammett in Insurrection. Last summer, he played Perchik in Fiddler on the Roof, receiving a Theater Association of New York Award for his performance. You can find out more about David and his work on his website at davidhilstein.com, which is davidhilstein.com. So please join me in welcoming revolutionary guest, David Hilfstein. And welcome, David Hilfstein. Thank you so much for taking time to join me here today. It is a pleasure to be able to talk to you. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure to be here with you. Now, I've uh, I asked you to be on the show for a couple of reasons. Um, one is, and we'll talk about this a little later, about your kind of evolution as an actor in in the world mm-hmm. of show business. Uh, <laughs> Um, but also, uh, when we had first met, you had talked to me about, I think it started out as a trip to Israel, but then you ended up staying and living there for a number of years. Okay. Um, so if we start with that, what was the impetus behind wanting to go to Israel in the first place? So I'd say the impetus was I was 26 years old. I was an actor and model in New York City, um, and the Taglit Birthright Organization that provides this incredible opportunity for American Jews ages 18 to 26 can go on a free 10-day trip to Israel and explore the homeland and, ex- and explore their connection to their Judaism and to Zionism or, or whatever parts of Israel they feel connected to. I, I knew that I, I, I always wanted to to go. But when I was in college, the Intifada was going on and it was really bad every day with bus explosions and, you know, shootings on the road. And I mean, it was horrible. And I got scared. And and I had a cousin that went around that time, I think around 2002 or 2003, and I didn't want to go. So I waited um, until I felt it was the right time for me. And then my sister went uh, a few years before I ended up going or my, and my cousin went like a couple, maybe a year before her. And I, I was like, okay, it's, I need to do this. And my parents had both lived in Israel in the seventies. Israel was always to me and throughout my life seen in pictures and postcards that my grandparents would send or, and bring back for me when they would go visit. And it always just felt like this far off land that was, you know, our ancestral homeland, but I had no real connection to it. 
And I felt like I was at the right age and sort of place in my life to go experience it. So I did it. And it absolutely was life-changing. I mean, but I'd say the impetus was just because I felt like I was ready at that age. I had just turned 26 uh, that Halloween. And I went um, the end of December. It was only 10 days, but it was a life-changing 10 days. And yeah. And did you grow up with a, a strong emphasis on the uh, on your Judaism and the the practice of it and everything in your family and feel a a call to want to go there at some point or was this something that developed um, all of a sudden? Yeah, I definitely grew up with a, a very strong sense of who I was as an American Jew and a connection to Judaism. My grandparents on my dad's side are Holocaust survivors from Krakow, Poland. And so that was always, you know, incredibly prevalent in my life. Um, I grew up conservative in North Florida, so in in Tallahassee. So, you know, as connected as we could be down there, we we didn't grow up religious. My parents didn't raise us observant, so to speak. We we didn't keep uh, Shabbat in the traditional sense. We didn't keep kosher, um, but we were we you know celebrated all the holidays and we, you know, always had Judaism in our lives, whether it be through our culture, our food. Um, Again, you know, growing up in the South, it's a little bit different, especially like in the 80s and 90s. And definitely Israel was, it wasn't like I came from this crazy Zionist home where everyone was Zionist, but it wasn't like, you know, oh, you have to go to Israel one day and you have to, I met friends there that were like that, whose, you know, parents couldn't wait to send them you know, after they turned 18, their gap year before they go to college, I I did it on my own. Nobody was nobody was encouraging me to go. From I mean, nobody was pushing me to go or anything. They were encouraging, but they weren't pushing me to go. Um, I wanted to do it on my own. I wanted to have a deeper connection to my Judaism, especially through the lens of being in Israel, because that's where I truly felt for the first time what it meant to be a Jew was when I was in the land, in Jerusalem, at the Western Wall, with my hands on the stones, crying, and just feeling the most amazing sense of connection and purpose, and it's powerful. Now, there's a term you've used, and and let, let us admit that we live in a time period where words seem to be very loaded, and people's reactions to them seems to be very... <laughs> um, harsh sometimes Uh, can you can you explain what you mean when you say zionist so to me when you say you're a zionist it means you support the state of israel's right to exist as an independent jewish state it doesn't mean that there aren't arab palestinians living there or or israeli palestinians but it means you support israel to have its own independent state and remember, you know, after the Holocaust, uh, I mean, it, you know, before, I mean, Israel became, you know, founded in 1948. Uh, my dad was born in 1946 in Konstanz, Germany, in a DP camp, in a displaced persons camp. Um, after my grandparents found each other through their uh, incredibly trying, well, obviously, I mean, I, they barely survived, but at the same time, they were able to reunite, and then my dad was born a year later. I mean, they they, they got back together in 1945, and the rest of my family was killed. I mean, only three, 
we have three three family members on Schindler's list that were cousins. Um, my two grandparents, my grandfather, grandmother, and my grandmother's mother. That was it. That was those three survived, and three more from, like I said, that were on Schindler's list. So my my grandparents knew Schindler, and a lot of people say, well, because of what the Jews went through in World War II and 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 the Holocaust and everything, that that's why, you know, Israel was formed. But I mean, when I say a Zionist, I mean you're in support of the Jews to have an ancestral homeland, because that is our ancestral homeland. And we go back thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years. So, and you can't take away our history and our our footprint. They're still every day with the archaeological digs they do. They're finding more and more artifacts and and proof from all the different temple periods, all the different kings. I mean, you know, thousands and thousands of years ago. So yeah, it is a loaded word. You're absolutely right. And I what I hope is that people don't think when you say you're a Zionist that, that it means you're anti-Palestinian because those two things don't I – don't, I don't think of it like that at all. They live there. I think we have to find a way to live side by side peacefully with them. I, I would dare say that the everyday people have learned how to live side by side and that generally most of these issues and problems come from a much higher up governmental level of people that are more concerned with personal power and could take yeah. a few lessons from how the everyday people have actually learned right. how to live side by side totally peacefully. I um, would agree with that. I absolutely would agree with that. I think it's totally coming from the government and from the leaders and, uh, you know, unfortunately with the different terrorist groups that their goal is to destroy Israel and kill Jews and kill Israelis. So was the uh, history of your family, like the the family that you had on Schindler's List and in the uh, that survived the war and all of that, was that something that was actively promoted to be passed down to you and to other people in your family, or is it just something you kind of have a vague knowledge of because it was mentioned but never really talked about? No, we are incredibly well versed um, and educated on our entire family's history. My grandfather. Um, was one of the founding members of this uh, Holocaust survivor group of, of people in New York called the Friend, the New Krakow Friendship Society, which is essentially are Holocaust survivors from Krakow that were now living in New York back in the in the 50s, and and we're still active with that. My dad's the president right now, and um, uh, yeah, we know all the stories. We have testimony. My grandparents were interviewed uh, by. Um, the National Archives Society from Washington, D.C., when Schindler, sorry, when Spielberg, when Steven Spielberg was getting ready to make Schindler's List, they he interviewed my grandparents for their stories. Um, and I was at Yad Vashem, which is the Holocaust Museum in Israel, in Jerusalem. Well, there's a few in Israel, but the, the biggest one and probably the, the most widely known in the world to be the, the best, the most extensive Holocaust Museum in the world. And... Um, I saw a copy of Schindler's List behind glass with my family's names on it right there. So um, we have a deep connection to Poland. My dad and uh, my aunt travel there regularly and do research and find, you know, more and more. We have property there. We have, I mean, it's, uh, you know, and things that were taken from us that we're trying to get back. I mean, it's um, 
was quite involved, but but we know we know the stories and we have all the details. My grandmother didn't really talk so much. She was the more closed off one and poured herself into her academic pursuits and became this world renowned scholar of Copernicus, the astronomer, and became a science historian and, and published books and novels on his research and taught in college. And my grandfather was a beautician. And uh, that's how he, that's actually how he survived the Holocaust was he worked at a a beauty shop, a barber shop right there in the center square of Krakow where they set up the ghetto. And when the SS soldiers invaded and set up shop there and put all the Jews into the, uh, kicked them out of their homes and, and threw them into this, this, these, you know, this area that they made the ghetto. My grandfather had to keep going to work as a 18 year old boy, 21. I think it was, no, I think he was 20 maybe. And he had to shave and cut the hair of these SS soldiers every day. And they would say to him, you know, Jew, if you, if you cut us, we kill you. It was, uh, I mean, his, Many more stories like that, but yes, to answer your question, we know we know the stories. And also, my grandfather's cousin Chaim Hilfstein was a doctor, and he worked with Schindler because Schindler chose um, a few, about four or five different Jewish doctors to help heal the people coming out of the concentration camps that survived. That you know, you can't. They were so emaciated and so, um, you know, sick that you have to do it in just the right way. If you feed them too much, their throat closes up and, you know, they die. And um, I mean, so if you look in Schindler's, um, I found a biography of him. My my cousin Chaim Hilfstein, Dr. Chaim Hilfstein is mentioned all throughout it. And um, yeah, and he's one of the ones on Schindler's list is Chaim, Miriam. And Edward, and those three Hilfsteins are cousins of my grandfather. My my grandparents actually gave up their spots on Schindler's List they could have had to an elderly couple because they knew that that elderly couple wouldn't be able to survive the work camps, and and that my grandparents were young and strong, and so yes, it's a deep history in our family, and I think that's something I always thought of when considering about Israel because. My grandparents, those ones I'm talking about, um, didn't get a chance to go to Israel. They chose, chose to come to America. And my mom's side was not involved in the Holocaust at all. They had been in America for a good, a good number of years before that. And they were the ones who always traveled to Israel and would send me postcards. And, would, and of course, you know, I grew up with this in Sunday school at my synagogue, um, learning all about, you know, the Jewish traditions in Israel. They're, it's so different trying to celebrate Jewish holidays in America. Because you see when you're there how each holiday corresponds to that time of year and that weather and, you know, how everything sort of makes sense there. And here you're kind of just doing it to do it and stay connected, but it's, but it's really designed to be done there. But I think that, you know, that touches on this idea and we keep seeing more and more studies come out of how people carry – traumas on yep. a DNA level through generations. They sure do. I totally believe in that. I'm with you on that completely. So, and I bring that up because I'm curious what the visceral sense or reaction or feeling was when you went to Israel. 
not just like, from, oh, look, here I am in the homeland. But from, I, I think that when we go someplace like that, it even more so activates that DNA level of what we carry around, even if we don't realize that's what's happening. Yeah. Um, so. I think, now you mean from me on a personal level, what did it do correct. for me, right? Not correct. to my, how it made my family feel or whatever about me being there. It's exactly what you just said, and that's how I've always described it. And most people who don't, who aren't tapped into a sort of a, a deeper energetic consciousness, sort of like you are and like I am, don't understand that. But that's exactly what it felt like. It felt like all of these sort of cellular memories, so to speak, and DNA memories that have been passed down to me and and different traits. And I felt like it all opened up and unlocked and came to life for me. And I was completely overwhelmed by the things I was feeling. Um, it was like, I honestly had almost like an outer body experience at the, at the Western wall at the Kotel, we call it in Hebrew. Um, and it felt like I had like a past life experience. And I remember being there like, you know, a certain century and seeing the temple like, you know, people fighting the temple burning and I it was just so visceral and so you know, I mean I'm I'm a I'm a very tapped into the spirit world person anyway. Not I've naturally been like that since I was a kid, but like the spiritual world, but that was just a, an experience like I've never had before. It felt like it felt like questions were being answered that I had never asked. It was so, so powerful. Yeah. Did did it also then raise other questions that you had never thought to ask? Oh, absolutely. Oh, 100%. Like, yep. Especially when I got back to America, I was like, now what do I do with this? You know, it opened up so many new channels of like, who am I? And what is my purpose here? And, you know, and, and what do I want out of my life and out of my Judaism? And what do I believe in? And, and how do I connect to being a Jew? Um, and I think that's what led me to my second trip to Israel, which was six months after I got back from that first 10-day experience. And then that was – that one was a whole different level. But, yeah, it absolutely inspired myself to go deeper and sort of just delve into these almost like questions I've never really asked. I kind of just went through the – I mean I always felt connected to my Judaism in America, but I also growing up in the South was kind of like the token Jew in my social group and on my baseball teams and, and all that. And I mean, and, when and, you was connect that, and was that something that was constantly, that you were constantly made aware of and, oh, and people would constantly, would constantly refer to? Oh, and they would call you, me Jew. Yeah. They would and, call me and, Jew. Yeah. And, they would call me schnoz. They would call me, um, Jew boy. They would call me, you know, stuff like that. I mean, they also, you know, endearingly would call me Hilfi, which was always kind of the, uh, you know, it's a nickname of my last name. Cause in sports, you usually get called by your last name, like Hilfstein. So they call me Hilfi and which is cute. But, but I always got, always would hear like, well, you're the only Jew I know, or you're the nicest Jew I know. And I would say, I'm the only Jew, you know, and they're like, well, you know, well, you're still the nicest one. I mean, like, and I think a lot of my friends actually looking back were, incredibly racist um because they all had like confederate flags in their truck and and you know and i didn't even really realize what the confederate flag represented i mean aside of you know from 
the Civil War and the South and the Confederacy, I didn't really realize at a you know age in high school that it meant like you were a racist or you don't like people who aren't white or and they would call like black people all kinds of the slang names and i was not cool with that because i grew up going to an all-black school until about second grade and because i grew up outside of tallahassee in this little town called quincy florida which is like right near the border of georgia and uh, i mean my friends i grew up with their grandparents were slaves and there were plantations near my house like i mean this was like you know this is the south the deep south and I was constantly made aware that I was the Jew of the group. Even if there was a few other Jews in my school, I was usually the only one who, like, was outspoken. Like, for instance, on Yom HaShoah, which is the day of remembrance of the Holocaust, I would wear a yellow sticker that said, never forget six million, on my shirt, around school, open, proud. I would always wear some kind of Star of David or a Chai symbol i'd always have some kind of like i was always proud of my judaism and no matter how much you know kind of adversity or or even anti-semitism i faced i always i stood up for myself and for my people but i also until i went to israel at 26 i never truly felt what it meant to connect to something greater than you the whole of kalal yisrael is how we say it which means like kind of all of Israel, meaning all the Jews that came from all the tribes. And you know, we're still finding tribes all over the world, like in Asia, in India, in Peru. And a lot of them are, are moving to Israel, making Aliyah and coming back, you know, home. And, and um, we're all over the place, honestly. So when you did go back to Israel, did you go back with a more focused intention or specific purpose from the first time that you went? Yes. I did. I went back wanting to grow more spiritually and to go deeper in my Judaism and learn a little bit more of what, you know, um, like how observant Jews do things. I mean, that wasn't, I won't say that was my intention to become observant or like religious, live a like religious Jewish lifestyle or anything, but definitely to have a deeper experience. And I did. And a lot of the people on my second trip, which were all like kind of working, you know, early to middle 20s working New Yorkers, were going to party and hook up with each other. And I was not interested in that at all. You know, we had rabbis with us on this trip, not like our birthright trip, which was mainly just – it was awesome. I, mean, I could get into details, but there was no like Jewish learning. There was Jewish education like about the history and about the land, but there wasn't like – you're going to learn a piece of text from the Torah or learn what the Shema prayer means or talk about Shabbat or, you know, different spiritual practices within Ju- Judaism. Um, and that trip was, oh, my God, it was all of that. But I won't say that it was that I left with that intention. I left with the intention of going deeper and kind of picking up where I left off on the last trip because, you know, 10 days is not really enough. And so this was three weeks. Right after we arrived, I remember feeling like, okay, I'm everything felt good again. I'm back home. I'm on the ground. Even though we were like, you know, at the Tel Aviv airport and getting into a bus and they were getting ready to drive us up north to the Golan Heights, this um, really striking Israeli religious Moroccan girl walks over to me in the back of the bus and says, hi, what's your name? 
And I said, I'm David. And I had around my neck, my neck pillow from my flight, you know, that you use for comfort. And it had a, um, it was like, but it was like a little dog. And she goes, well, and who's that? And I said, oh, that's shekels. Now shekels, shekel is Israeli currency, a shekel. So I named him after Israeli currency. <laughs> I thought Shekels, Shekels the dog is cute. So anyway, from that moment, we had this like very instant connection. And she and I kind of more or less fell in love during that trip. And it was so powerful because she was our, the Israeli term is madracha, the Hebrew word is madracha, which means like, basically female teacher. So she was our tour guide hired by, you know, like a tour company, but she was religious. She was observant. She had a skirt on past her knees. She had like, she didn't touch anybody of the opposite sex, which is called Shomer Nagia, which means guarding touch. And so I was like, so intrigued by that. Cause I never met a girl who wouldn't like shake my hand or give me a hug or, you know what I mean? So I was kind of, that definitely intrigued me. And I was like, I really want to find out more about this whole world. Right. So whenever we had downtime and weren't doing like trip related things with the whole group, she and I would meet privately and just talk for hours and she would teach me anything I wanted to know or ask. And she just started, I remember she came up to me and she said, um, it was one of our first events there. We were having like a barbecue out on this kibbutz up North. And she said, you're special. She said, you're different than all the other guys here. You are on a completely different spiritual plane. I can sense it from you. She was that kind of person, you know, and she was right, but I didn't know what that meant. And I said, what do you mean by that? So that intrigued me more. So I would, you know, I would go, can we meet? Can we talk? And then, you know, things developed. And, um, and then I realized that I wanted to grow. And within like probably a week into the trip, I started wearing a kippah, you know, Jewish head covering and trying to like, oh, I learned about saying blessings before you eat. Um, food and you there's a different blessing for each kind of food so I was really more interested at that point in like growing and I was clearly like you know um, felt deeply connected to this girl and uh, and we were just kind of like she was like my guide you know she was like my spiritual guide on this trip even though we had rabbis with us and I just felt so inspired and so moved by she was a huge influence in my desire to explore more about what it means to like have a more kind of, I don't know what the right word is, I guess Torah lifestyle within Judaism. You know what I mean? Like, well, it's almost like yeah. living a more spiritual life rather than a religious life. At that point it was definitely, that's where I was at that point. And, and so like, I was always a spiritual person, like I said earlier in the, in the interview and she detected, you know, that, in me and and would bring it out more and would say you know don't be afraid to ask questions and and don't be afraid to go against the grain because you're different you're not like these other guys and i was like yeah i mean I, I don't i don't know exactly what you mean but i i i feel that i'm different and um that was an amazing trip i actually ended up extending my trip for a week it was actually supposed to be only a 14 day trip i think i extended for a week and i ended up um, enrolling at this yeshiva called Aisha Torah in the old city and learning for a week there. And she and I would meet every day after my studies were over and talk and go on little like, you know, road trips. Uh, we call them teals or tiluim, um, which are like kind of little day trips. And we'd go to like, you know, little caves or um, go just eat olives somewhere. Or, that's actually, that's 
that summer is when I fell in love with olives. I never liked olives before that, which I still love olives to this day. But she was amazing. And and then over the course of the next few years, you continued to go back and forth very regularly. Did you actually ever live there for an extended period of time? Oh, absolutely. No. So after that trip, I went back to New York and I, I called my agent and I said, um, I said, I need to take a break. I, I, I actually decided at that point that the acting and modeling and, and all the auditions and work I was doing was just not speaking to me and it wasn't speaking to my spiritual place that I was in and, and, and um, she and I were in touch every day. So long story short, I went back to Israel about four months after that and enrolled in a yeshiva and started like doing the whole – I mean at that point I was already keeping Shabbat and I was keeping kosher. Like I was really – really got into living a more observant life. Um, and I, I'm not going to lie. I think some of that motivation might've been because that's what kind of life she lived. And I wanted to show her that I could also live that life if she and I were going to be together and get married and start a family and all that, or, you know, start a life together. But, but, but I do believe that that's what I needed to experience at that time. So yeah, I went back that December. I remember it was during Hanukkah time and I stayed until the next, um, July. So I was there at that point for eight months. I can't get into all that because it's too much. And then after, after that trip or, or stay, that was an extended period. That was, so I did two trips and then an eight month stay where I was learning and growing and living pretty much a religious observant lifestyle. And, you know, just in Jerusalem, but kind of exploring so much outside of my yeshiva that I was at. Um, and then I got involved with this group called um, Israelite, which was led by this Kabbalistic rabbi named Rabbi David Aaron. And it was like this sort of summer group called Inward Bound that they put together of people who just wanted to stay in Israel, whether it was after a trip or, or just maybe had a bad experience growing up religious and wanted a different approach. And, you know, they use music a lot and, and more spirituality than like, you know, than religious indoctrination or something like that. And it was really cool. So I was, I was the madrich for that. So I was like the kind of male kind of assistant teacher to the rabbis that were running that. And we lived in this awesome neighborhood called Nachla Ot, which is this, the coolest neighborhood in Jerusalem. It's right across from the um, very famous, Machane Yehuda Shuk, which is the outdoor market where everybody gets their food and goods, and it's incredible. It's like people from all over the world live in this neighborhood, and some Jews, some non-Jews, some religious, some not religious, hippies, you know, pot smokers like that, you know, from San Francisco. Like, there's everything there. It's so cool. So we lived in this house, men on one floor, women on uh, the floor above us, because they wanted everything separate, and. Uh, that was an amazing two month experience. And then, then at that point I realized I want to live here. And so I filled out all my paperwork to become a citizen and make Aliyah, as they said. And then I came back to America for five weeks, spent time with my family, packed up all my stuff and then went back and started a new life there. And that was September 8th, 2008 was a day my plane landed in Israel. And um, that's the day I became an Israeli citizen. I still retain my American citizenship, but but the but the chron the chronology of the story is a one ten day trip, and then about six months later, a three week 
a two week trip and then I extended for a week. So about three weeks and then four months later, an eight month extended stay. And then I came, like I said, I only came back for five weeks and then I went back and, and moved there. That was, it was, I know it was fast. Like within a year, basically I'd gone from going for the first time to well, about a year and a half to, I want to live here. So, yeah. What what yep. would you what would you say to someone if they felt that life isn't satisfying them at a deeper level and oh, they are wanting question. to connect with something within themselves mm-hmm. deeper how how would you suggest to them to examine that to explore that and does it mean that they need to leave and go someplace else or what would you recognize as that experience for yourself that even if somebody couldn't leave they would still be able to undergo so that's a great question that speaks to me deeply i would definitely say the first thing would be to meditate to just get quiet with yourself and just you know whatever it takes to figure out how to find that inner stillness, that inner quiet, and just start meditating because the answers are already inside of you. They're already there. You, the problem is we rarely get quiet enough so we can hear them. And for me, that's kind of how it started was I would start meditating you know, in my room in New York City even before my first trip to Israel. And then I started getting a sense of like, okay, this is speaking to me. And then when I came back, I would do that. And then I would you know, imagine myself in Israel and, and I would start to feel these, this sort of hunger inside to want to grow more spiritually. And I think, look, I'm not a huge advocate of religion in the sense of like organized religion. Cause I think there's a lot of issues with that, but spirituality is a different story. Now I used to be religious. I used, well, I, again, I don't like to use that word. I used to be observant, uh, like Jewishly observant, like strictly Shomer Shabbat, you know, kept, kept the Sabbath kept kosher, um, you know, prayed three times a day, put the tefillin on, you know, the, the boxes on the head and the arm, like everything that I thought I was supposed to do as a good religious man. Well, and I, again, I did this on my own. My family was not really, um, they were supportive, but they were definitely confused and definitely a little, that's a whole nother subject, how my family was affected by this. But, um, but sometimes you have to do things for yourself and you have to always respect your family and your parents, of course, that's number one, but you have to really ask yourself, what is it that you feel you're lacking and what is it that you are hoping to find? And I truly believe that if you can get quiet wherever you are, it's something you can definitely do on your own, but you have to start taking account of the things that are in your life. And if there's anything that you're feeling is emotionally or definitely physically unhealthy, then you have to clear that out of your life or at least try to because it's holding you back from being your truest, best self, right? I'm not saying like everyone run off to India or Thailand or, you know, and, and, and join an ashram. Although I have, I have practiced meditation at an ashram before in Israel, actually in the desert. Amazing. Um, I did an Osho intensive for three days. It blew my mind. Um, and my soul for sure and heart. But I would say that if there's something pulling inside of you, you just got to listen to your gut. And that thing is normally that you aren't where you need to be spiritually. 
And, and I think it's different for everyone, you know, what you want to connect to. If you call it God, the universe, nature, you know, energy, um, whatever. But I think the most important thing is to connect within yourself because I think all of those things are within us as well. So, I think that's important for people to also realize this, this experience of going deeper into the self or becoming more spiritual – I, I separate that idea when I said being spiritual versus religious. Religious mm-hmm. often means people go through the motions of what they were told right. to do, whereas right. spiritual means I have a deeper connection or understanding to what I'm doing, and I do it for a purpose rather than just because I'm supposed to. Um, but what you were saying is also, I think, important for people to realize that don't compare your experience to anyone else's. You know, Absolutely. Go, go to no, what 100%. is calling to you, what is resonating yep. for you, and find how you need to relate to that and work with that. You yep. might start with some more organized um, group or, or tradition or something that allows right. a starting place, but don't get too locked into it and think, I'm supposed to do this or I should do it this way. Yeah, but also totally. find your own spirituality rather than just locking into how somebody else and comparing yourself to somebody else's experience and thinking yours is inferior because it's not like what this person described or getting too caught up in a particular teacher guru that you think somehow knows only knows better than you rather than you knowing best for yourself. I couldn't agree more. I think you said it perfectly because I used to do that. I'm totally guilty of that. I compared myself to my other friends, spiritual growth or, Oh, they took on this mitzvah this week and I didn't or and then I realized, you know what? Like maybe I'm not ready for that level, if you want to call it that, or that mitzvah. There's so many in Judaism and and I realized that, you know, you have to do it on your own time and in your own way. And I mean I I truly believe that what is right for you comes to you and what is meant for you will find you because it's not about, like you said, going through the motions. That's the worst. I mean, look, there's so many of us that were raised religious and I, I, I actually wasn't one of them, but we definitely had that strong, deep connection to our culture and to our history and to our, our practices. But, but we didn't, it wasn't like you have to do this, you have to do that. I wanted that more on my own because I actually grew up without a lot of structure in my life. And I think for me, I wanted more structure. So I think maybe that's why I went to religion through my Judaism. But now I use all kinds of different spiritual practices. I don't do any one thing. I'm still very connected in my Judaism, but I, I meditate you know, on a regular basis. I, I'm, I have a deep connection to Buddhism. Um, I, don't, you know, I don't worship any idols or anything like that. I mean, I, I, I'm... I always sort of stick with the monotheistic, you know, idea of, of Judaism in, in a way. But at the same time, I don't, I don't look at, I, I think of it all as energy that's sort of flowing and passing and going. And I don't, I think it's so much more important to, like you said, find an individual spiritual practice that works for you. Whether, and it could be anything as simple as, as, as starting off with some yoga. You know, I do yoga as well. I do it every day. And, um, aside from my regular, you know, working out and exercises I do to, to stay healthy and stay in shape and, and, uh, and fit. And that is so important to find a balance in, you know, 
uh, a physical practice, an emotional practice, a spiritual practice, a mental practice. You know, you want to combine as we all the cliche term, right? Like mind, body, and soul, but it's true. They really do work together and everything, you know, is, is, is affected by the other one. And I mean, something as simple as yoga, because yoga originally, you know, I'm sure as you know, was, was designed and and sort of invented to be a spiritual practice. It wasn't a physical workout the way it is now. It was a spiritual practice, kind of how we think of meditation. And if certain poses, open you up to certain emotions and certain feelings and it's very meditative for me um but that would be my advice is is definitely what you said um aside from things i said is finding your own individual thing that speaks to you and works for you and just trying things and well and and a lot of what you mentioned in there too is also the importance of doing something regularly making it a practice you can't just do it haphazardly and right. you know and i think that we hear some of the impact of that even by you going to israel because there you were immersed in it and doing it regularly rather than right. just well if i feel like it or you know oh it's been a couple of months maybe i should do this rather than it being more structured to some extent but just regular more yeah, than anything yeah i totally i i mean i was doing things every day that i had never done before in my life i mean look i uh, you know, I was an athlete most of my life, and there was a regimen to that. You know, you you go to practice, you you warm up, you stretch. You, I mean, there's you know, and I think I was missing that sort of sense of of you know structure, like I was talking about earlier. And 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 no one in my family expected me to like go to religion because they're like, oh, David's an open guy. I'm you know, I'm very sort of free, and and um, why would I want to be you know? not want to say narrowed in, but you know what I mean? Like, why would I want to be pulled into any one rigid thing? And the thing is with me, even when I was living a observant Jewish life, I was not rigid. I still did it my own way. And my friends would be like, oh, you're, you know, you, you, you don't really do it the right way. You're not, I'm like, dude, I do it how it works for me. And you know, what's funny is a lot of the rabbis who uh, were sort of helping me decide, like kind of being, you know, spiritual guides for me and helping me decide where maybe I want to study in Israel, what yeshiva, where all, always said to me, you know, however you live your Judaism, whether it's, you know, super, whether you want to be observant or not, and you are always going to do it your own way. You're going to kind of carve out your own like thing. And they're exactly right. I did. Cause I can't be put in a box. You know, I just, I'm not that kind of person, but there's so many people that like that. They like the structure. They like the rigidity. Like, I like some of it, I, but I want to do it on my own way. Like, I want, like, I'll pray every day, but I do it in my own way. I don't allow Judaism to tell me when to do it, even though that's a lot of how it is. And I just don't, I don't jive with that. And so I'm happy that I've, that I've found what works for me. You know what I'm saying? And it was one thing that I always appreciated, and I think that really struck me at a young age because. Um, some books that really were instrumental to me in growing up is when I read Kayam Potak. Oh yeah. And you know, the, Absolutely. and it seemed that the, the, almost the basis of education was to question and to debate. Exactly. And, you know, and, and I grew up in a, a Southern Baptist fundamentalist in the Midwest family. Right. 
Um, right. Where there you don't question, <laughs> you know, you're just told here are the rules and then you're supposed to just abide by them and not ask anything about right. why or, you know, do anything outside of that. Otherwise it's bad, bad, bad. Um, and so that, that underlying willingness to teach the art of questioning and debating rather than just take it because I say so is something that always stood out to me as a hallmark of Judaism. And maybe that's just yeah. specific to what was being represented in those books. I don't know. But uh, it, it seemed as if that was kind of a, a, an underlying hallmark of Judaism in general. Um, I, I do believe that is true. I also think that, you know, we actually know the family. We know the Potok family, by the way. Um, and um, I think he's a great writer. And I, I highly admire that was an American experience of Judaism in most of those books like my name is Asher Lev and and um and the chosen um I think one of the like you said one of the fundamental fundamental things of being a Jew is to question always and I think it's the people who say no we have the answers and this is the right way that have it wrong when you're in it when you're in that like really bright light of the spiritual growth you know it's it's easy to get caught up in the um, well, you want everybody to do it how you're doing it because you think that's the best way to be, and it's your family. So you're like, why aren't these people like understanding that obviously it's better to keep kosher for a number of reasons, not just your spiritual reasons, for even health reasons, that it's obviously better to keep Shabbat because it makes sense after six days to have one day where you completely unplug from everything figuratively and theoretically – uh, speaking and reconnect to the world and to your family and to, you know what I mean? And to, I always, this amazing woman in Israel always, um, was very close to me for many years there. Um, always described it to me as for six days, we receive blessings from Hashem, from God. I don't like to use the word God, by the way. It's so not a Jewish word, but Hashem, um, which means the name, by the way. Um, because as we know, I don't, I don't know if you know or your listeners know, but there's 72 names of God in Judaism and throughout the Torah and throughout the Old Testament. So um, so for six days we receive and we ask Hashem for things. We, we are constantly in need of different blessings and different you know, prayers and this and that. But for one day, we should send it all back up and say thank you. And that those 25 hours when you observe Shabbat are the time when you just praise God and you reconnect to your family. Like I say, you reconnect to your family, you eat amazing food, and you, you're not worried about all of those you know, normal things in life that we worry about on a daily basis like phone calls and bills and, you know, and all that. You totally disconnect from that and you just have 25-hour period of immersion in spirituality. And love and song and dance and you know what I mean and not the mundane things in life that we think make up who we are because those are all just details right so yeah that was an amazing period for me yeah how long did you um, then live in Israel so I lived in Israel for a total of I think close to eight years if you count the time before I actually officially became a citizen and made Aliyah, as we say in Hebrew, which means 
to ascend. The Aliyah means to go up, because the idea is when you enter the land of Israel, your soul is elevated. It's it's going up, um, like in you know spiritually. Um, so that was December 2007, and then I officially made Aliyah and moved there September 2008. But I count that whole time I was there uh, before I that those eight months. So it's you know roughly a year. And then I was there from then until 2014, so seven seven years, about, yeah, seven years. And how would you describe the David Hilfstein of 2006 and prior to the David Hilfstein of 2014 and later? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> um, wow, like two completely different people. Uh I feel like prior to 2006, I was confused. I was um, unsure of anything. I was constantly attached to the idea of an outcome or, you know, um, got myself all worked up into a, like a frenzy of, you know, whether it's after an audition or a relationship, why doesn't she like me? Why does, why, you know, why am I not, why didn't I get that part? I felt like, and spiritually, I, I really didn't have a sense of what I believed in. I mean, I always, like I said, I always was proud and connected to my Judaism, but I didn't even know what that meant. I didn't know if it meant that, like, I needed to know, you know, if I wanted to raise a Jewish family, if I wanted to have a Jewish wife, if I wanted to have Judaism. I, I knew I wanted to have a Jewish home, but I don't know. I think I just, you know, got caught up in the acting modeling world of New York, and, and there's so much, you know, like sex and drugs and i mean it sounds cliche but it's true and i tried to stay away from all that you know and 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 that's when i really felt like kind of going on the spiritual journey was the right thing for me because i needed to get away from all this stuff that really just felt like you know felt like bullshit it felt like materialism and commercialism and it was very shallow and it was very um unfulfilling you know at the end of the day and I wanted more than that. And um, and then post-2014, I learned what it meant to trust God, trust the universe, trust the process of whatever is supposed to unfold in your life. Um, I learned how to cook <laughs> for myself when I was in Israel and all through all kinds of work and, and different things I had. But really there was one special woman who came into my life there who was sort of like the second spiritual guide. And powerful women always come into my life to guide me. And this woman named Sarah uh, came into my life very soon after I made Aliyah. And, um, and she and I were deeply connected for years there and was sort of like my guide, like my Rebbe, like my teacher, you know, and, and, and a deep love of mine. And she cracked me open, so to speak. You know what I mean? And, um, all kinds of stuff poured out. And she said to me, I remember uh, early in the time we spent together, she turned to me one night. We were in a deep conversation about our lives and, and her life particularly. And she said, you have the highest emotional intelligence of anyone I've ever met your age. And I was 28, I think, at the time, or maybe still 27. And I I think I knew what she meant, but I, I sort of was taken aback by that because – just her saying that to me meant she saw me. She saw the deep. She saw me deeply. She didn't just see the outside. She didn't just see the actor model guy. She saw like 
She saw my soul. She saw my heart. She saw my brain. Those things mattered to me so much. You know, being cracked open by by this time in my life by her, uh, post-14, post-2014, I was... Well, when I came back, it wasn't actually a planned thing. I kind of... (laughs) I had an apartment in Jerusalem. I had all my stuff there. I, I had I had 100% planned on, on coming to America for about f- four weeks. It was my parents' 40th wedding anniversary. Um, and then I was going to go back. And then a whole bunch of stuff happened while I was here. And stuff happened there with uh, the, the all the rockets from Gaza and the war breaking out. And um, actually, the morning I went to the airport... Um, I was, I think, July 13th, 2014. Five rockets were shot at the airport when I was there. And we had to run into the bomb shelter in the airport. The entire top of Ben Gurion Airport emptied into the stairwells. It was crazy. Then this woman starts yelling at us in Hebrew, Kadima, Kadima, bomb shelter, bomb shelter. And I was like, what? So it was crazy. And then... That day was really when rockets started flying all around the country um, and Hamas uh, terrorists were trying to disrupt our lives as much as possible. And I actually I missed my flight. Uh, I had to connect in Istanbul in Turkey and I was flying Turkish Airlines because I heard it was a great international airline. So I thought I'd try it. And me and along with uh, myself and along with all these other Israelis that were trying to get to New York – um, missed our connection flight in Istanbul. We ended up being there for like seven hours and we finally got internet service at this little cafe where we were trying to find some food to eat and um, or like the food court area. And we saw there were rockets going to all the major cities in Israel coming from, from Gaza, obviously, to Haifa, Tel Aviv, Beersheba, Jerusalem. It, I was like, oh, okay, this is it. This is a big deal. So when I was, so when I landed that's, I mean, the war had already begun. I can't even call it a war because they were just shooting at us and we only went in with our, you know, Air Force to like take out targets and and weapon caches and, you know, terrorists and stuff. It's not like we were actually at war with them. We're just defending our country. Um, but I found out um, a week after I'd been back that my roommate that I'd been living with in Jerusalem, this lovely woman from New York whose daughter had moved there like a year before, had to leave and was moving back to New York. I said, okay, I can live on my own again, but, but I had lost my job, my regular day job there, uh, working with a, um, teenage autistic, uh, boy and on the spectrum and his family privately in a home in Jerusalem. Um, so I didn't have a job to go back to now my roommates leaving. And then a couple days after that, I get an email from my landlord that the apartment sold. So I'm like, okay, so my apartment sold. I don't have a roommate. I don't have a job. And there's a huge uh, war going on um, that lasted 52 days. And and my agent in Tel Aviv, my acting agent, and some directors I had recently had great meetings with that were interested in making English-speaking um, uh, movies and, and projects, both told me there's no work here. Both big TV shows that were filming there, Tyrant, um, that I think aired on FX, and Dig, that was on TBS – or no, USA, sorry, both packed up and left because they couldn't ensure the, the production company to stay there with all the rockets coming in and sirens going off and you have to run to a bomb shelter. And, you know, so I said, well, shit, there's not really much to go back to right now. And so, yeah, that summer, that was crazy. That was so much growth. 
post 2014, that was that was that was it for me. That was the year where I really realized, okay, if I'm serious about my acting career, if I'm serious about besides the fact I was living, you know, 10,000 miles away from my family and my father had had a heart attack the year before and ended up having a triple bypass, so that kind of freaked me out being that far away from family. I said, "Well, if I go back, I know what I'm going back to." So, I decided to stay. And I had no idea like what I was doing. I just said, I have to trust God. And I'm feeling like he's like, I'm spiritually feeling like I'm not supposed to be back in Israel right now. So I just trusted that. That was a huge thing for me. The trust of just believing that I am where I'm supposed to be at any given time. Because if I wasn't meant to be there, I wouldn't be there. And you were, you were acting before you ever went to Israel. You worked as an actor while you were there. You continue to successfully work as an actor now. Um, How do you think that time that you spent in Israel, how did it affect you or change you as an actor from who you were as an actor before to who you are as an actor now? Oh, my gosh. I think I grew so much as an actor in Israel because I think tapping into the spiritual growth, into the deeper parts of myself, into, you know, accessing all these different things within me, emotionally, spiritually, allow me to grow in my acting because that's what acting is, is accessing your emotions. I felt like I did some of my best work in Israel, actually. And I think some of the people that I worked with would agree. Um, I actually did not have a plan of continuing my acting when I moved there. I was totally like thinking I was going to be a rabbi or I was going to, you know, just do start a fitness company because I'm also a personal trainer and have a degree in exercise science but I really wasn't so inspired to work in the fitness industry anymore. I did that a lot when I was in New York and I was acting and modeling and wasn't that fulfilling. Um, I wasn't really sure how the acting was going to fit, but I got cast in Rent, you know, the famous musical, like two weeks after I moved to Israel. And that's where I met that woman, Sarah, actually. She was the musical director. And finding a community that was like-minded, even though a lot of people in our cast were not observant Jews, were not religious, um, we had a mix of everything, gay, straight, bi, you know, actors were it's kind of, you're going to get a mix. And, um, but it was beautiful because when we didn't rehearse on Shabbat because we, the director was also religious and, and the musical director was religious and, I mean, observant. So, I mean, everyone respected everyone's level of observance, which was whether you were completely secular or were observant, you know, so... That was amazing because in Jerusalem, like on Shabbat, everything shuts down. I quickly realized that as much as I love theater, well, I started a theater company with that woman, Sarah, called Way Off Productions. And we did um, socially relevant black box style theater for about two years. But I started getting making a name for myself, um, partly from people seeing me in, in Rent when I played Mark Cohen. Um, but... I started getting cast in, in various like commercials and, and different like Jewish educational videos and going to Tel Aviv for auditions for, um, you know, different uh, Israeli you know, TV commercials, high tech stuff. And so, yeah, I, you know, I worked in the ways I could there, but it was unfulfilling to me as an actor. And so I think that's ultimately what kind of inspired me to come back to America besides my family and, and, and some other things was to truly have the opportunities 
to have the kind of career that I desire and dream of. I, I could never have that kind of career in Israel. I wanted more than that. So here I am. And are there any roles that you feel you just could never play because it would be too uncomfortable? Um, and and oh, has that changed since, good question. you know, before <laughs> you went to Israel versus, you know, well, now? It's funny when you ask that because when I got cast in Rent, I was actually – I walked in with the kippah on and the CT, you know, the strings hanging off from the side. And so they asked, are you – and it even was on the audition form, are you comfortable with um, – because you, know, you have to remember this is Jerusalem, and these are a lot of religious people and a lot of people that don't mix, you know, like they don't uh, touch girls if they're even dating, if they're not married or whatever. So like – you have to take all this into consideration. It's very modest. So the question was like, are, are you comfortable touching, you know, the opposite gender or the same gender? Are you comfortable kissing the opposite gender or the same gender? And I wrote yes to everything, even though at that point I was living a more modest spiritual religious life. And when they asked me that, my answer at the audition was, it's art. I'll do anything for art. You know, I, I can separate that. I can compartmentalize that. There were some moments in Israel where I had to consider if I would play a certain part because it involved even just kissing or touching that for me, as an American actor, nobody would even think twice about. But where I was at the time, that was early in my kind of spiritual journey. But then even when I was more observant and still wearing a kippah and still keeping Shabbat, I had to do this play called Fat Pig that is a Neil LeBute play. He's a playwright from Chicago, and it's about body image and our perception of body image. And I played this character named Tom, um, and he falls in love with this plus-size girl named Helen. And the actress and I had tons of kissing and making out and touching and rubbing to do on stage in front of the whole audience in a black box setting, very intimate, you know, very close to the audience, like 50-seat theater. And um, we had to be okay with that. And I just, I just dove in because I'm like, I'm playing a character. I'm an actor. This is what's needed for the part. But there were times early on where I was like, yeah, I don't know if I'm comfortable with that. Or, or it had to do with maybe the person I was in a relationship with at the time saying like, are you okay? So I would say, are you comfortable with me kissing another woman on stage or kissing a man on stage? I've had to play many gay parts. So, I mean, none, none of that bothers me. Last year, I played a part um, in a play where I had a whole kissing scene with a with a, a guy on stage, and I had no issue with it. I'm an actor, you know. I I'm an open person, like, so I I have no problem with any of that. Um, so, well, and, yeah. and it's interesting that that's what you bring up, and I understand the cultural context, especially like when you were in Israel. But yeah. I'm always fascinated and sometimes a little disappointed. When I see certain actors who will be very hesitant to, say, play a gay role, but they would jump up and down with joy if they got cast as the lead serial killer role. And right. so that's and so I'm wondering, especially for roles like that, like, would you be able to say this is art and I can do this for the sake of art if you were offered the the role that Rafe Fiennes played in Schindler's List. Well, uh, yeah, that see that for me is a much tougher question than if I would play a gay role or 
you know, have whatever, anything like sexual related or, or love related, it would be much more difficult for me to play the role. Yeah. Who has to like kill Jews or, um, or I think or, of the, the people who had to play like the, the white roles in movies like, um, 12 years American, a slave or like American history X, like Edward Norton. Well, playing a, yes, you know, that or, but, oh, but you I, mean think, like I think of like 12 years of slave or yeah like michael uh, or Django part. unchained or birth of right. a nation yeah right. where you have to get into the headspace yeah that's say that's things tough. to this person in front of you and treat this person in front of you in certain ways even just for a few minutes in that scene when they're shooting it but it's tough it's it is tough it really but, is. But um, I always wonder, is there a line for you as an actor where you'd say, I just I couldn't me, go into that mindset. I couldn't play that role. It would just be too disturbing, upsetting, or it just goes so against my belief system that I just couldn't. Um, I would have to say no, because I haven't, I haven't personally encountered anything like that so far in my acting career. I mean, it could happen, but um, I mean, being that I'm a very ethnically ambiguous looking person i don't think i would ever be in a position to have to play a slave owner or someone who has to you know something like you said in 12 years a slave but you know i could easily play you know some kind of middle eastern character or mediterranean character that may have to do some be a terrorist or you know what i'm saying like i don't play terrorist but i could i just had to play uh an iranian militant in a film um and i have to kill somebody but that's an iranian feature film isn't it yeah yeah. And was there any issue for you, well, for you personally to think about working on a project that's Iranian just because of at least their no. government's, you know, no. <laughs> views no, towards be- Israel and that kind of thing? And and no. did you encounter no. any issues in the, the process of, of doing the film from anyone? No, I didn't. But I will say on that film, I also had to play a mullah, you know, a religious Islamic leader. And that, honestly... The stuff I had to say, channeling this character, um, is probably the toughest stuff I've I've ever had to say, and and feel as an actor for a part, because I would never, ever believe or condone anything I had to say as this character. And I just riffed for like it wasn't a set script. I just they said just you know, this is kind of what these people believe in and what the laws they pass and just sort of give us like two to three minutes of improv of like giving a sermon as, as a mullah. And I did. And I was like, I can't believe some of the shit I said. Um, but you know, that's what they needed. But the point is that, I mean, even a couple of years ago, fall 2015, I did a play called insurrection holding history by a playwright named Robert O'Hara, who's quite famous in the, in the black playwright world theater world and he's also a gay playwright and he wrote this play it premiered at the public theater in 1995 and it's really interesting it's kind of like roots meets like the wizard of oz i had to play a slave named hammett i do not i'm not black i am not black i cannot pass for black um but i am of mixed ethnicity and being a jew this 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 is what the director said I feel comfortable casting you in this part because even though you're not black, I feel comfortable casting you in this part because you, you know, your people do come from the Middle East and you're not just some white boy from Nebraska. You know what I mean? And, and you have color. You're not, you know, so I get that. Like if anything, I think I look more Mediterranean, but 
but regardless, I um, so I played the part. Um, anyway, this play is fascinating, and and we had talkbacks afterwards, and um, people would ask me, or I would, or even I would ask them, like, how do you feel playing a black character when you're not black? And I said, you know, I was a little unsure at first, but I'm glad I did it because, I mean, I really like went into the mind and the and the sort of emotional place of being a slave. I mean, and my people have been slaves, but I've never been a slave, you know. Um, and people said, no, we didn't mind you playing the part because you're not necessarily saying I'm a black man playing this part. And they said, because we look at it as these were audience members speaking. We look at it as you telling this person's story, not you embodying this person's look and telling them their story. And I don't really have a line I draw with my art as an actor. I don't say, oh, that, I will never do that. I'll never do frontal nudity or, or I'll never, you know, uh, play a serial killer. No, I mean, it all depends on the role and the writing and the project. I think it's an individual basis, but I don't limit myself. And if I do, then what kind of artist am I being? I don't want to limit myself. Like, my whole being is about being explorative and being an explorative learner learner and and a, and a exper- experimental learner like i learned from experiencing it you know what i mean so that was a great question you asked i i, I love that question what do you think would be something that is either a, a misconception or is unknown about israel and the jewish people and judaism um that you would like to set the record straight on or enlighten people about oh wow israel is not an apartheid country like a lot of people are saying it is first of all the people that are saying it have never even been there and have not seen what it's like um and have no idea what the west bank means or where the lines are drawn quote unquote there are no actual lines they're just drawn on a map and i think a huge misconception is that you know this whole like occupation my my personal thought is it's it's difficult to occupy your own land israel is all about equal rights but the problem is you know one bad apple can ruin the whole bunch so if if one guy decides to strap a bomb to his chest or ram his car into a group of people waiting on a bus stop i mean how does that come into your consciousness this whole martyrdom idea but israel in my opinion, was never, even though it was called Palestine, it was still 100% always inhabited by Jews, even when through our four exiles. When it, when it went from Palestine to Israel in 1948, um, it didn't mean that like, and then all these people that weren't allowed back into the places they lived before or the countries they originally came from, like Jordan or Yemen or, you know, uh, Lebanon or Syria, Iraq, Iran, then all of a sudden became refugees. Well, how, how are you refugees? What are you refugees of? What are you refugees from? No, what's happening in Syria, those people are refugees. They cannot go back to their land because they're being killed with nerve gas and with bombings. I mean, this is a heinous atrocity that we all have to stand up against, but especially as Jews, because our people, you know, have been through the same thing. And remember what Martin Luther King Jr. said. 
Those who do nothing while witnessing injustice and wrongdoing do worse than those who commit acts of injustice. And I think Israel is always the country that chooses life, always the country that chooses love. The people in Israel are so loving. There's so many good people, and it's getting overshadowed by the bad ones and the, and the horrible, corrupt government that are taking advantage of like the Palestinian Authority and, of course, Hamas and Gaza. What, what can we do about it? We have to figure out a way for all of us to live together. And I met so many lovely, beautiful, nice Palestinians there. I think that there's tons of misconceptions on Israel, and I think people should go there and see it for themselves. And, and not to mention that Israel is always the first country to go aid another country that has a natural disaster, whether it's an earthquake, a tsunami. We're always there because that's what we do as Jews. That's what we do. We're, the, we're supposed to be a light unto the nation, you know? And to me, that has always meant to do it through showing other people how to love, being an a influence through our actions. Well, and I think um, what you said about the Jewish people supposed to be the light in the world um, is the perfect lead in to something I do at the end of each conversation where I have a question to ask you that a previous mm -hmm. guest had posed, not knowing who okay. would get the question. Um, and then I'll ask you for a question to put forth for a future guest. Okay. Um, so the question I'm going to ask you comes from my guest last month, uh, Jenny Wild, who's an artist and doing a project called um, Love Notes to the World, where mm -hmm. she's creating a globe and having <clears throat> people from around the world send in the yarn to use to create the globe and then... Um, their love notes to the world that they she fills the globe with and then it travels around. Okay. Uh, so her question for you is this. What are places that you can identify in your life where instead of anger, hatred, resentment, or fear, you could choose to act from love and how can you share that and spread kindness? Mm. Wow. it's a great question. Well, I definitely say with our current political landscape, <laughs> um, I could definitely try and find more love for the people that are running our country, but it's really hard with the decisions they're making. And I think they're, I don't know if they're trying to destroy us or kill us or wage war in another country, but I suppose that I could stop in the moment and say, although I don't trust politicians, so it's probably not a good area for me to. <laughs> Um, like use that example. Hmm. That is a really good question. I, I don't hate anything. I don't, I don't put that in my heart. I don't allow that to live in me. Um, I also don't resent anything because I believe everything comes into our lives for a reason and everything has a purpose. And I live by this Hebrew sort of saying, Gamzula Tova, which means everything happens for a reason and a good reason. Um, even though it's really hard to see it sometimes, you know, as it's happening, like, how is this for good, you know? But I definitely think that there are always moments when I am fearing, feeling fearful about something um, that I could stop the fear and replace it with love and say, you know what, I'm going to love it. I'm going to love through this. I'm not going to allow fear to dictate my emotion, whether it's you know, what's the next step in my career? Am I going to find love? 
Um, am I, why am I not, you know, going to go meet this casting director or whatever is it, you know, and just say, you know what, let's just put love there and see how that makes me feel. And I think if we all did a little bit of that, um, you know, just on an individual basis, whether it's for our government, for um, people we disagree with, um, I disagree with people all the time, especially about, you know, our president and the people he's appointed and and the administration. I, I think I don't agree with any of it. Um, I'm not in support of almost all of it. And um, I I think that allowing love to enter those places because that's fear. You know, a lot of that's fear based, like. I'm fearful of what's going to happen. So maybe instead, you know, um, I could say, well, let me put love there. And then maybe that will transform that fear, you know? Um, Good question. What question would you like to pose to a future Mm, guest? Let's see. My question would be... When was the last time you felt truly free and at one with yourself, your surroundings, and the universe? Excellent question. Thank you. (laughs) So if people wanted to follow you or find out more about you and be able to see you on screen, um, where, where would they be able to find information about you at? Okay, so you can go to my website, which is um, davidhilfstein.com. Um, also, I have a Facebook page, David Hilfstein Actor on Facebook, and also Instagram. It's just my name, just David Hilfstein. So, All right. yeah, I would say that. And you can see me on TV soon. I just can't tell you. <laughs> on Netflix. What? It's going to be on Netflix. I just can't say what is the series or give any details because, again, I'm not at liberty to say. Um, but soon, hopefully, Is it a new series? It is a new series, yes. There you go. This was a pleasure. Thank you so much. You're welcome. And thank you, David Hilfstein, for having taken the time <laughs> to be here. And, My pleasure. Uh, speak My pleasure. You're listening to Revolution with host Heisey Lutmers. Find out more at facebook.com slash revolution with high C.
בתוך המרים, איך משתנות לי הפנים, איך ניכרות לי המילים, עדיין. כי חשבתי פתרון, שזה שטויות בעיקרון, שזה רק מישהו לחיות בשניים. Revolution with host Heisey Lutmers. We hope you enjoyed the show. Find out more at facebook.com slash revolution with Heisey. Please join us next time for Evolve with Robin White Turtle Lizney, Thursday afternoon at 2 p.m. This is Deb Carousella. Thank you for joining us. Thank you.